Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. This episode is sponsored by Happy Fox Health, a natural supplement brand focused on CMOS, a marine algae that has 92 out of 102 essential nutrients that your body needs to thrive and regenerate. I've used a number of their products and found it's really given me clarity of mind. Visit happyfoxhealth.com and use promo code THECRAFT for an exclusive 15-20% to 20% discount off your first product purchase. Amanda Lee Smith is a true visionary. An early start in journalism as a teen led her into a career in communications at various places before landing a plum branded content role at Kitten Ace. She took a chance on herself, launching Coterie Co., which eventually became Monday Creative, a branding and content marketing agency that counts Lululemon, Arcteryx, Herschel Supply, Smash and Tess, EA Sports, and more as clients. She grew up with two sisters, one her twin, in the suburbs in a supportive home that regularly practiced evangelical Christianity, with loving parents who have been married for 52 years. Ambitious and unafraid from a young age, she was into everything under the sun. School, books, writing, sports, student council, punk rock. After her first marriage ended, Amanda went through a reckoning with her faith, a process that shifted her identity and broke her open to all kinds of nuances and groups that exist in life and in the world. Since then, Amanda has continued to forge her path ahead, evolving Monday Creative in its new strategic partnership with Range, teaching digital storytelling at UBC, and, more recently, entering the world of angel investing with Future Tense Capital. In this conversation, we explore how her religion and faith shaped her identity, and how it's evolved over the years. The book trilogy she wrote in the first grade, and a teen punk rock phase, where her love for storytelling came from, working at Kitten Ace and the talented team from that chapter, how Monday's strategic partnership with Range serendipitously came to be, her passion for apparel circularity and emerging fabric technology, getting into angel investing and the future tense values, her relationship with the concept of grace in daily life, and much more. Please enjoy this vast conversation with the incredibly intelligent, generous, and bold changemaker, Amanda Lee Smith. Amanda Lee Smith. May Globus. Welcome to The Craft. Thank you. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. On this rainy day. Yes, on this rainy day. I get to spend some time with you, have a great deep conversation as per usual. Mm-hmm. We do have a history of big heart-to-hearts every time we talk. Huge, yeah. <laughs> I feel like we see each other a couple of times a year, mm-hmm. and each time we just there, we go straight to <laughs> the source. Maybe it's from our journalism backgrounds. I Maybe think that you could and I be it. Just don't do shallow. Yeah, we're both question askers. Yes, mm. yes, yes. And I'll get to that because okay. I it's something that I've noticed about you. You're, you're very mm. good at asking questions. I had a conversation with someone the other day who came from a Mormon background, and, and we had that same, like, just dove right in. And I have this theory that people that come from really religious backgrounds are used to getting deep right away. So mm. that that could also be part of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. I can't, I can't, I don't know if that accounts for you, but... For me, definitely, like, people that have an evangelical Christian background, I'm like, we just get into it. Yeah. Immediately. Maybe. I mean, 
Yeah, when my mar- my mom was married to my Persian stepdad, we were practicing the Baha'i faith. So I went to Sunday school. Oh, and my mm-hmm. Baha'i friends go like they connect mm-hmm. immediately. So yes, yes, that's I don't a practice thing. it anymore, but yeah, no, I do remember, you know, those days mm-hmm. quite vividly. But I was trying to think of how you and I actually connected, and I could not figure out our exact meet cute I I know that we have similar friends Mm -hmm. but I don't know if you remember do you remember yeah I was thinking of it this morning actually because I knew we were gonna probably talk about this um I knew who you were from Joy Pecknold yeah I I saw this cute girl with the beautiful hair (laughs) um on the interwebs and then we got to work together in my very brief stint at Rennie when I was director of marketing for Pendo and that was when we actually got to start spending some quality time together Oh my gosh, I completely forgot about the Pendo days. It was a real blip. It was a real blip, Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And then we started going for lunches. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. I love it. Thank you for remembering. I was like, oh, I have a total brain gap right now. Yeah, there were some art shows back then. There was Mm -hmm. a holiday party. There Mm -hmm. was just like a few key moments in those three months that Mm -hmm. I did that job. Yes, that is very true. And now we're here in a podcast studio. (laughs) Not at those jobs anymore. No. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about growing up. So you were born in BGH, but mm-hmm. raised in Coquitlam in Surrey. Tell me about that time in your yeah. life. Yeah, I so I was born literally three blocks from where I've lived for the last eleven years in South Granville at Vancouver General. Um, have a twin sister, so had a really fun time growing up because I had this playmate who was equally imaginative as I was. We had an older sister who who picked on us a lot. So we kind of, you know, like banded together and we existed in a really vast imaginative world of Cabbage Patch dolls <laughs> that all had names and individual personalities. We were a little family. I was mom. My twin sister Diana was big sister Kelly. And then we, we had uh, like three or four cabbage patches and a couple of these do- dolls called My Child. I don't know if you remember them. They were I like don't. hot for a second in like 1985. Um, but we existed in that world and my mom would sew them clothes and we brought them to school and made them do lip syncs in front of our class. Like shout out to Madame Friesen who <laughs> let us like write punk rock versions of the French songs that we were learning <laughs> version class um yeah we had a really like robust imaginative childhood that our parents indulged mm. tell me about your parents Ooh, um very loving and very generous um uh, like real traditional gender roles my dad worked at the same company uh, a steel company since the time he was 18 working in the warehouse worked his way up to VP of sales and it got like acquired and he started working across all of Western BC managing sales teams and he worked there until he retired 46 years later my mom was a stay-at-home mom for years and then um, went into early childhood education and so that she was like really focused on being home for us so we had like a really stable home life dad traveled a lot but mom was always like home and they fulfilled very traditional roles which all my two sisters and I have all really (laughs) kind of rejected I mean my twin sister is a very devoted mom but she's also very devoted to her teaching career so um yeah like we've all kind of broken out of that mold but my parents have been married for 50 I want to say it's going to be 53 years but might be 52 years and they like each other like they love each other 
I, I really think that I'm one of the rare families that I know where like, you know, you meet people and their parents have married a long time. My question is always like, do you think they like each other? And so many of my friends say, I think they like love each other and would never leave each other, but I don't know if they like each other. Mm. <laughs> Whereas I think my parents like legit like each other, you mm. know, like they do these long road trips to California a couple times a year because they have a place down there. And I think they just like sing along to oldies in the car together. And like they really are, are like, you know, they have fun. Yeah. It sounds like and my mom was 16 when they met. They got married when she was 18. Wow. So it's a miracle. Okay. Yeah, 52, 53 years. That mm-hmm. is a long time to be with someone and to go through all of the yeah. things that life throws. Yeah, all of their children are either divorced or have challenging <laughs> marriages. So, like, sorry, mom and dad. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you said that um, you were quite involved at a younger age in the um, in the church. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to know how, like, that played in your, in your growing up. Oh, I mean, it was everything. Like, we went to church twice on Sundays, once in the morning and once in the evening, we were involved in the horribly named girls group Crusaders. <laughs> like I really hope they've renamed that by now. Um, but that was like a girls club where we would like study the Bible and memorize verses and and that carried all the way through university, like high school, university was super involved in the church all the way through. My faith really evolved through those years. Um, but, uh, like, you know, married a Christian when I was super young, as you do. And, um, when I got divorced, that's when things started to unravel for me in that side of things, because, uh, all of a sudden, you know, I was like reading this Bible that was telling me that I should stay in my marriage no matter what, unless like it was a physically abusive marriage and it didn't really allow for the grace of like what a really miserable, unhappy, unkind marriage would do. And and, like credit to my parents, they really had their eyes opened about divorce during that time and were like so supportive of the decision that I made. But um, a lot of other people in my life were very judgmental about the decision that I made to leave my marriage. And I was just like, I can't reconcile this with what the Bible's telling me. Like there's no way that a good loving God wants me to stay in this like destructive, resentful, like moderately abusive relationship. Mm. So yeah, that was like the first unraveling. And then there was having gay friends who I loved and who were in, you know, like some of the best people I knew. And I'm like, how can this, how can this institution not recognize you for who you are? Mm. And so that was another piece. And then like more and more of it started to unravel. But um, was it, it very was, difficult for you? It's painful. It's painful. Uh, like there are there are religious institutions that I think will flat out reject you if you leave. The Protestant Church isn't like that. Like I still attend a church regularly. I actually just came from lunch with my pastor, who I really really love and respect. I don't subscribe to the theolo- theology anymore. Like I definitely identify as agnostic at this point. But um, I love some things that the church stands for. I hate some things that the church stands for, but I I was just saying to someone the other day, there are very few places that have a mission that is like totally focused on serving the poor and the underrepresented and the hurting. Um, They don't always do a good job of it, but some places do. And you have like this intergenerational relationship. There's people that I see when I go to church, which isn't that often, but when I do go, that I'm just like, I would never interact with you otherwise. And I'm so glad to be exposed to different ages, different socioeconomic groups. Mm. You get that in the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that would definitely be 
excuse my language, a total mind fuck. It was a mind fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right? And yes. you're just trying to, because so much of that is also your identity growing up. And then to have that sort of blown apart and having that kind of reckoning and, and then trying to come out of that. And your friend groups, you know, like mm. my friends have gone through a similar evolution, but yeah, that was a hundred percent my identity. Like I um, went overseas to do missions. Like I lived in Africa for three months in grade 11, like in the name of this thing, I lived in Maui as part of an organization called Youth with a Mission that solely exists to train people to evangelize people in other countries. And now I just see how colonial that is and it feels so cringy in so mm. many ways. Yeah, yeah. So to take it back to you, mm. as this is sort of you now, mm. but you as a child and a teenager, what were you like? I know that you had your punk rock phase. I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have the scar under my lip to prove that I had my librette piercing at one point. <laughs> I, but the funny thing is, like, I w- it was Christian punk rock, you know? Like, we would go to this festival in southern Washington called Tom Festival that was put on uh, largely by uh, a couple of Christian rock record labels and we would like sleep in the dirt and like skank because ska music was a big yes. thing and like and hardcore where you're just like punching the earth as you're dancing. <laughs> yes, that's it was, right. Uh, it was a weird, weird time. But yeah, I, I went through that phase, but um, I was like this weird mix of like very social, but also very bookish. So like when I was really little, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I wrote my first series of novels when I was in grade grades one and two. I had this start them young. We had we lived in this crazy house that my parents had built, but we couldn't fully afford to furnish. But it had an indoor hot tub, and underneath the hot tub was all this framing. And I turned one of the kind of like horizontal boards into my desk, and I wrote like a trilogy of novels about this anthropomorphic peanut named Nuthead, <laughs> and I illustrated them. Like I knew I was going to be <laughs> a writer, and. Um, and, and then, you know, it was like yearbook editor, student council president. No surprise, I run a business yep. now. <laughs> you did all the things. I did all of those things. But then I was also like, you know, I went to this school where it was, at least in my grade, it was kind of cool to be a nerd. And so I was like, you know, like a social, I was very popular and social and like a, a leader in my school. So was just involved in everything and friends with, you know, almost everyone. So like pretty happy social Mm-hmm. Punk rocker. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you were well rounded. Yeah. Hmm. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I not I'd a lot say of so. high school trauma. Like I'm one of these kids that actually had a really positive high school experience mm. d- despite um the fact that I went to a really conservative Christian school. Yes. Like, I, I, I can fit in. I don't know if you've talked to anyone about the Enneagram much on this yes. podcast. but It's I'm like, come up a couple of times. I'm a pure Enneagram three. Like <laughs> I'm a performer and an achiever and I'll adapt to be whoever I need to be in a situation. And it has served me well. Mm-hmm. And the storytelling from you writing your, mm. your peanut trilogy <laughs> <laughs> to after high school, you your career beginnings were in journalism. Yeah. 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 I thought that I wanted to be the editor of YM magazine. Like, uh, do you remember <laughs> Young and I Modern? I do because I wanted to be an editor at Cosmo. Oh, yeah. Cosmo, <laughs> Cosmo was like too racy. You know, we were not allowed to read Cosmo because they talked about how to give blowjobs. That's that's true. <laughs> Which is literally how I learned. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Cosmo. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, YM was like just the right or Seventeen magazine. Seventeen. Love Seventeen oh, magazine. I, I wanted it. to be a magazine editor, and so I like had this this course that I was gonna say I wanted to do like internships in New York, but I totally underestimated you know the type of money you need to have to live <laughs> in New York and do an internship, or the type of connections, or even like what it takes to go to school in the states. And as loving and supportive as my parents were, they were like you can have this amount of money to go to university and that means you need to live at home. You need to pay for half your tuition. Like, you know, there was no way I didn't want to go into debt to go to school. Like, thank God I managed to, to do that. I had really good jobs all through university. Um, and so it meant that that path, you know, wasn't really going to be open to me. Um, but I studied communications mm -hmm. at SFU. Uh, it took me a while to realize that there was a degree program that in which I could just like write and read and do critical theory. And um, that, you know, took me like a year of kind of wandering in the wilderness after high school to find that program. And then I took some big gaps. But eventually, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I took this journalism path. My first job was uh, like an internship at the Langley Advanced News. Um, I wish I could say I learned a lot there. I think it was just maybe like a <laughs> stamp like, of legitimacy. Yes. Were you like mostly getting coffee and moving around I papers? Was like, you know, I was actually running around Langley taking pictures of like horses and okay. like weird sculptors. Like they do an arts program in the summer. I haven't thought about this in years, but yeah, I was like literally on the ground taking pictures of people in the community and writing their stories. Um, so I guess I should give them more yeah, credit. Yeah, that's actually quite the experience for an intern. I, yeah. You were writing stories. You know, you weren't just like doing administrative yeah. things for other reporters. Editors, actually. Yeah. Okay. That's a good, that was a good step for you then. <laughs> it was. And, and at that same time, I, so I did not go to Trinity Western University, but most of my like really good friends did. And my best friend was the editor of the student newspaper at Trinity. And she recruited me to come on as the arts and entertainment editor, but I was not a student at Trinity. So I took one course there one semester, <laughs> was the A&E editor, didn't enroll in another class, but continued to be the A&E editor and collect a stipend. I have no idea how that flew under the radar. Oh, my gosh. But I got some good hey, experience you, there. Yeah, I bet you did. I'm curious to know, because you're, you're talking about writing and the storytelling, and where do you think it came from? Oh, my grandfather. Mm. Yeah. Um, my mom's family is super creative. They're all like so musical and um, wonderful writers. Like I have a, a couple of cousins that are really wonderful writers and storytellers. But my grandfather is like was a storyteller. And I, I feel we didn't get to spend a lot of time with him. He got remarried. His wife died when my mom was 13. He got remarried a couple months later to the next door neighbor. <laughs> Mm. They um, they like eloped in Hawaii. My mom was there, and they didn't tell anyone. They didn't live together for like six months to a year afterwards because, of course, we're Christians and it would look kind of sketchy. But you have to get married to sleep together, so they probably felt like they had to elope. Um, uh, he like he he wasn't really allowed to spend a lot of time with us. His his new wife wouldn't let him spend a lot of time with us. And actually, he he had a tattoo on his forearm that had my, my maternal grandmother's name on it, Agnes, and his mm. second wife made him get her name covered up. Ooh. So when I got my first tattoo, I got his tattoo right here on my side oh, to that's kind special. of honor, honor that mm -hmm. and, and my connection with him. So he, we would like, the few times we saw him every year, maybe we'd see him once a year, he would just sit and regale us with tales. And he was a wonderful writer, and that's been passed down to all my aunties and uncles on that side too. Mm. Yeah. And my mom, like, 
my mom is one of the best writers that I know, or one of the best editors I know. And she didn't even finish high school till she was in her 30s. She dropped out to get married really, really young. She went back to do her GED so that she could then go on to do her college program. But she edited every single essay that my sister and I did in university, and she is a meticulous editor. So a lot of it came from her. Okay, so this editing, writing, communications is literally in your blood. Mm-hmm. Mm. Which is what you did, your career journey with communications. Mm -hmm. It led you to different agencies and brands, and um, you ended up at Kit and Ace for a while, getting a branded content. Very formative days. Yes. How was that experience? It was wonderful. Like, (laughs) there are are so many things to be said about working in in an environment that fast-paced. The people that I worked with there, I've stayed really close with a lot of them, my business partner being one of them. And it's, it's in some ways the shared trauma because it was so intense, but it was also like the most exhilarating experience. You know, we grew so fast. Um, if, you know, uh, not everyone will know Kit and Ace, but it was founded by the family that started Lululemon. So it just had tons of funding out of the gate and such an ambitious growth plan and like real visionaries at the helm. And sometimes it made it really, really hard to do work because those visionaries would be sitting around the dinner table and direction would completely change the next day. You'd think you had landed on something one day and then they'd have a conversation over dinner and come back and be like, nope, we're doing something totally mm. different. And so we all bonded over like how trying that was but also we kind of had carte blanche to do whatever we wanted I was going to ask about that how much creative freedom were you given for the first year there were no limits on budgets so like one of the things we did was we um we plated a like a airstream trailer in copper because that was one of our brand colors and we just took it on a giant road trip to show the product off all around America someone from my team was always on we called it the copper studio so there was always a writer there and they would in every city interview creatives to put on our online magazine and we would have a photographer on site like we just had the best time and the people that 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 family hired are the most entrepreneurial people I have ever met Mm. I think probably one or two of them have been on this very podcast Mm -hmm. they are so smart and so ambitious like I think of it as uh, like I got paid to do an MBA basically because I learned like Courtney Chu. I learned so much from Courtney Chu. Um, My friend Marlon Thompson, who I was mentioning earlier, like there's just like these incredible leaders who have all gone on to start their own businesses. All of my co-brand managers have started an agency called Very Polite. Like there's just so Mm -hmm. much talent on that team. Like Dylan Recker from Very Polite is the maybe the most genius creative I've ever worked with. And so getting to like feed off of that level of talent and learn from them when I knew nothing about working yeah. at a brand. I'd never worked at a brand. They took a total chance on me. That was Courtney who took a chance mm-hmm. on me. Mm-hmm. And I learned everything on the ground. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you just need to be thrown into the fire yeah. to just learn these things and you know, kind of see what you're you're made of. And it I do get that sense from the people who work there that everybody has stayed close yeah. after. Yeah. So there's something to be said about, um, yeah, them bringing good people together. 100%. And mm-hmm. I remember, like, Chip and J.J. Wilson saying at different times, like, you always have to hire people that are smarter than you. And they found incredible talent. Mm. And then you took a leap of faith yeah. and started your own agency, Coterie. Yep. yep. 
yeah. which is now Monday, mm-hmm. Monday Creative. Mm-hmm. And you've got some amazing clients. You're working yeah. with Lululemon, Mira, Arcteryx, Herschel Supply, mm-hmm. Walmart, EA Sports, Kashka, Kaska? Kaska. Kaska. Yep. Smash and Tess, yeah. and you have another exciting client yeah, that you just, just started working we with. Just signed our first deal with Adidas. Wow! Congratulations. That feels monumental, and that is really mm-hmm. credit to the relationships that w- that we've built over the last couple of years. Um, people that we've brought onto our team who have those who have already fostered those relationships. Yeah. Oh mm-hmm. gosh. I mean, when when younger people come to me and say, "Hey, can I have a coffee with you to talk about you know your career and what you you did? Can you give me any advice?" And just talking about relationships, that is the one piece of advice I give them. I say, if there's anything you could do, it is build your relationships from day one, you know, and make sure that you're building it authentically. Don't don't build any fake ones, but those relationships are going to carry you through anything you do. They and have they were the foundation of mm-hmm. Monday. I like I was just onboarding a new hire this morning and going through just some like general like how we work, how we live principles. And one is we never burn a bridge. No matter no matter how challenging a client is, we never burn a bridge. You never mm-hmm. know where an opportunity is c- going to come from. I I'm very conscious that I want everyone to have a positive experience of Monday and to be saying good things about us up, out in the world. And I take a lot of coffees. Mm-hmm. Like I know you're good like this mm-hmm. too. Like I have a much bigger social network than most people, partly because I just find people so interesting. But like opportunity comes from everywhere everywhere and what is and for me is what's the harm in connecting with someone new or reconnecting with someone old like it's it's what life is about I really I really really believe that a lot and you're gonna hear great stories no matter what great stories you'll always pick something up it's it's really really incredible and you know back in my old career we did some work with you guys when I was at Rennie and I was always so impressed with how diligent and aligned your team was and also you I always noticed that you asked really really good questions and you were really really skilled at drilling down to the most important things that we needed to talk about in a meeting Mm -hmm. like you you were very good at at knowing when it's kind of going off piece a little bit and just (laughs) bringing it right back in one of my greatest skills is like I don't need this information let's refocus it Mm -hmm. yeah there was a lot of refocusing so no I, I mean from the other side of the table it's it's really much appreciated and I'm sure that is part of the storytelling journalism like what's the core it is but there's also there's there's you know there's a bunch of reasons that we're like this we have taken like Lindsay and I my business partner and I you know having met at Kitten Ace there were some principles that were like that they drove into us at Kitten Ace one that you probably noticed is like we always start and end meetings on time like we're really integral about timekeeping and respecting people's time and life's lives outside of this moment that we're having together. So that is driving us to focus. But also for Monday, the thing that we're doing for our clients is helping them with their positioning and figuring out the story, like what we like to say, the words that create their worlds. And we had to do that for us too. Like we had to get super focused about who we are and what we're for. So we've like reflected that back onto ourselves and then onto our clients. And Mm. that's, yeah, nod to a guy named Blair Enns who uh, has a podcast called Two Bobs. It's all about like positioning your agency and getting hyper-focused. Oh, I need to Mm -hmm. definitely listen to that. Yeah. Um, And you have a strategic partnership with another agency now called 
range, mm-hmm. which is actually increasing your range and your your types of clientele. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about how all the pieces started to align for this to happen. Oh, this was pure serendipity, which is my world. Um, so just before the pandemic, I, you know, we had gotten hyper focused on focusing on outdoor and active and natural wellness brands for Monday. And so I started to rethink my business development strategy and I decided that I needed to go to Denver to go to this trade show called Outdoor Retailer that happens twice a year in Denver. And when I went, I started hearing from a bunch of people that I needed to meet this woman named Janine Pesh. And we had just signed our first contract with Arcteryx. And my friend Kent, who works there, said, you need to meet Janine. Her husband's the creative director at Arcteryx, Cooper Gill. And um, Janine's kind of like the queen of outdoor retailer. So if you can get some time with her, you'll be lucky. And then the first day that I was there, I met up with another agency owner. And we sat down. And right away, she goes, oh, that's Janine Pesh. You need to meet her. And so, like, everyone was pointing me towards Janine. And we met. I went to a party that Janine threw. We all ended up going out to a bar afterwards. And just our, like, worlds kept sort of orbiting. And then a couple months, you know, into the pandemic, once people started seeing each other outside again, Janine reached out to talk about another project that is still on the back burner that we, that we may do together. But when Lindsay, my business partner, got pregnant and we were looking for someone to take her place, we had some really strong candidates, but at the end of the day, we're like, what we really want is Janine, but we don't think we can afford her. And she's running a whole other agency. But we thought there was no harm in asking. So we did, and she said she would come on 20 hours a week. And so we basically spent what we were going to spend on a full-time person, on a part-time person, but it was so worth it. And she's just been such a beautiful fit for our team and has brought a completely new skill set. And so right now we're talking about what it's going to look like to expand that and add a whole branch of the business that's um, trend and audience um, and color, like forecasting and insights. And we have a deep research component to our branding now. We didn't always, but we do now. And she's just like amplifying that. And she knows everyone in the outdoor industry. So Mm. she also is like a powerhouse in business development. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Hence Adidas. Hence Adidas. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know if I ever told you, but one of my first jobs that I I got when I got back into Vancouver from L.A. was doing part-time work with um, a trend forecaster. No. Renee. Yeah, she, like, by far, she's, out of all of the bosses and mentors I, I've had, I really, really appreciate the, appreciate the time I spent with her. She was at a company called Promo Steel for a really long she time. She would know Janine because Janine worked there as well. Oh, okay, yeah. yes. Yeah, so Renee was there for years and years and years. Um, And then she ended up moving to L.A. and then she started her own thing. And she's still doing trends, but I think she's doing a lot of trend forecasting in architecture right now. But I remember just working on projects with her. I think we worked on – no, not I think. We worked (laughs) on um, um, a book for the Toronto Fashion Incubator on on being sustainable and – but even just like – colors mm-hmm. and like what what are people in who what are people going to be into like a two seasons from now oh it's incredible and like, the nuance that goes into it so mm-hmm. i've like observing janine she is looking at like what's happening in culture and in the moment like what's happening in the economy what is happening in tech all of those things are shaping even the colors that we're going to be seeing two or three years down the line it's like it's an art form and i think it takes years and years to get good at it mm-hmm. and so I mean, it's not a skill that I have, and I'm so grateful that we have someone that does. That's so, so cool. Well, I'm excited to see what kind of work comes out of that. Me too. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. I feel like your team, since I worked with you uh, at Rennie, mm-hmm. it's 
grown. It really has. Like it's doubled or tripled? Oh, it's tripled for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're 15 now. Mm -hmm. We're hiring three more roles at the moment. Like we'll be 20 by the end of the year. And I think we'll probably cap it out at 30 at some point. But we don't want to be, you know, we really have a nine to five culture and we're not trying to be millionaires. We're just trying to do really amazing work and create fulfilling work opportunities for people. Mm -hmm. But it's really fun to grow. And we are like so comfortable with risk. So we're just like, what what next? I mean, and you're also a natural visionary. So it's it doesn't surprise me at all that you've grown this way. I have a question about your time at Kitten Ace and particular, particularly around, because you launched an in-house digital magazine, yes. right? Yeah, I'm curious to know if there's a difference in your thought process when you're strategizing a magazine for web versus anything you've done in print. Yes, 100%. Um, I... Oh, they both have their different nuances. And and honestly, the magazine we did for Kitten Ace was a big learning. So I had come from print magazines. I had edited two different magazines at universities, like alumni magazines. And there is an art to the headline in print that I relish. Like you can get really punny and creative and then you write a deck that just like speaks to the headline and, and people are like, oh, that's so clever. And you cannot do that on the web, you know, like. SEO is everything you need to say what's in the tin and be so literal. And so like a learning around like making content findable and making it clickable was huge. I I was so idealistic when I went into Kitten Ace. I was like, well, I'm going to tell stories just for the sake of telling stories. Like I just want to do good journalism. And that has that's gone. And I and I thought that there was like an integrity piece that would go out the door with that. But it's not like Brands are in the business of selling things. People come to brands to buy things. They want to know, like, how do I wear this? What do I pair it with? How does it work? Like, what do you stand for? And so I'm really a convert to, like, tell stories that speak to your product and your values. But, like, not every story has to be this, like, standalone piece of journalism because you're not actually serving your customer that well. Mm. Um, You're really serving your customer by educating them and integrating them deeper into the brand because they're you know because that's what they're interested yeah. in that's why they're coming you're not going to the rei blog to like um read a think piece you're going to be like you know what's the best dehydrated meal i don't know right right <laughs> yeah. yeah and you did your master's in publishing in mm-hmm. 2013 and you wrote a thesis yeah i'm curious to know uh, which examined uh, i think small lifestyle brands yeah. that are using content to extend their their reach online what did you learn like in that process of creating that thesis well one so I worked at this uh really cute brand in Portland called Bridge and Burn um I need to give so much credit to Eric Prowell the owner of Bridge and Burn for taking a chance on me I literally like cold emailed him and was like I think I can like make your marketing better and he was like all right you're gonna work for me for free like I couldn't be paid because it was in Portland and I'm Canadian so um one is like the the value of an omni-channel strategy. I didn't have a strategy going into Bridge and Burn. I was like, I'm just gonna make some content. And so I realized like it's so hard to to real to figure out what your email is gonna be every week when you don't have an overarching strategy. So figuring out like what are your values and what are your key messages for the brand like forever and then making sure that all of your content maps back to those key messages and pillars and then like 
having a plan for what stories you're going to tell and what brand values you're going to shine a spotlight on each quarter and making sure that that aligns with the product that you're dropping every quarter so that you have some ammo for the stories that you're telling. I was really shooting in the dark at Bridge and Burn, and we got some good traction, but nowhere near the traction that we would have if I hadn't learned what I learned from Courtney, too, about how to make a really good editorial calendar. Mm, yes. That structure is super important, yeah, right? Like strategy. having those, yeah, having that, that, that strategy. It is literally sure. what I've made my living on for the last five years. Yes, <laughs> this is true. Tell me about your passion for fabric innovation and mm. circularity. Can you, for people who don't understand what circularity is, yeah. can you? Yeah, so circularity is, I think when I first got into it, I was thinking more about end of life. Like, how do you take a product that you're not using anymore and extend the life of it or repurpose it into some, something else? In the last couple of years since we've gotten into this, and, and really it's because of the work that we did with Arcteryx on their um, program. It's called ReBird at the moment, and it's all of their circular initiatives. So, um, like, uh, repurposing old um maybe like unused raw materials or um, finding new life for dead stock or um, reselling used gear. Um, but now it's it's becoming so central to most uh, product companies, especially apparel companies and especially outdoor apparel because we have a mandate to get people outside and protect the environment and yet we're putting all these petroleum products out into the world. So um, more and more companies and uh, companies like Patagonia, Cotopaxi and Arcteryx, who are on my South by Southwest panel, mm -hmm. are really leading the charge on thinking about um, fabric development from the earliest stages. Like what how can we create fabrics that are going to have a more sustainable end of life or have a, like a, another use in mm. the future? And so, you know, we're not product people in terms of making it, but we are product people in terms of like helping people think strategically about how they can um, develop their line and then tell the stories about it to ensure that they align with their positioning and their mm. values. So I really geek out about any sort of organic um, fabrics. So anything that comes from mushrooms, kelp, algae. We're seeing like foam that's coming from algae now that's making its way into shoes. One of our clients, call it Spring, um, has been using some algae in their foam shoes. And I think it's so cool. Like Lululemon just launched their mushroom um, line of products. Yes. I was just going to say, I've noticed a bunch of fashion houses like Stella McCartney, I think was the yeah. first one with mushroom leather. Yes. I think. I think it's called Milo is yeah. the leather product that mm -hmm. they're using. And like they're they're growing leather and it's fast growing. And so there mm -hmm. are so many different uses. We we had a really interesting client out of LA that is harvesting CO2 from like um, abandoned mines, cow farms that have like an excess of CO2. And they're pulling, they're pulling the petroleum, I think this is what it is, from that CO2 in the air and turning it into like a vegan leather product took 16 years to develop this technology wow. but that that's really incredible and you know just this just came to mind right now thinking as you were talking and just listening to it there's something just really beautiful about now we're working kind of in symbiosis with the natural world yeah to create you know just to create things yeah. that you know won't be as harmful yes but that yeah that beautiful symbiosis yeah. is long overdue I mean, nature is so smart. <laughs> nature is so smart. We're we're getting way more focused on it. We've always had 
a core purpose. Like we like to say that our brand purpose at Monday is to seduce people into the outdoors. And we have a set of key messages that map back to that, but we actually just rewrote our key messages and we got rid of one and replaced it with um, uh, our first client is the planet. And so now mm. we're viewing every single project through that lens, challenging people, not letting clients getting get away with greenwashing, which we probably have let slide in the past. We're, we've just started our B Corp application process. We're just awesome. entering into a partnership with Protect Our Winters. Like we're actively trying to like be, be the solution, you right. know, through you're, the work that we're doing. You're walking the talk. Yeah, yeah. Try. Trying. Um, you mentioned your South by Southwest panel. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know what um, what stuck out most for you in the conversation that you had with these incredible female execs. There was something that um, Eileen Ottenweller from Patagonia, like uh, all of the women on this panel were incredibly intelligent. And I love that all the sustainability leaders at these brands are women. But Eileen used the term extractive capitalism. I'd never heard that term before. And I think, you know, Patagonia is miles ahead of all of us. But really thinking about, um, you know, like I, I run a business, like I'm a contributor to capitalism. I'm a a contributor to extractive capitalism. What's the opposite then of extractive capitalism? Like how can we be regenerative in our ca capitalism? And so especially as I'm going through the B Corp application process, they're asking some tough questions of me. Like, like I thought we were doing a really wonderful job of sustainability and they're asking like, well, what benchmarks are you using? Like, how are you tracking your impact? And I'm realizing we're not tracking our impact. So how can I say that we're having a positive impact? Mm. Like I need to get way more rigorous about ensuring that we're doing what we say we're doing. Mm, that's yeah. a big thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're walking the walk, you know, you have to yeah. be able to show that. Totally. The other mm. thing, um, Annie Ogle from Cotopaxi, she, she, like their organization really thinks about environmental issues as humans right, human rights issues. And so they have a core mission around um, like, really sustainable and ethical labor practices. And, and at the end of the day, when we destroy the environment, we're destroying ourselves. And so like to that speaks to my Christian roots, you know, mm -hmm. like it's all about serving people. When I look at the, the nonprofits that I support, it's all like poverty alleviation, mentoring young girls that are like not getting access to the same opportunities as me. I haven't historically donated to environmental organizations because at the end of the day, I care about the planet, but I care about people. Like I want hum humanity and nature to coexist and I want both of them to thrive. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so like, I loved the way that, that the Cotopaxi team thinks about um, their sustainability initiatives being for humans. Right. Oh, I love that too. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, I feel like you and I have talked about this before, but every we're, everything is so interconnected, whether we see it or not. And there's no way that we can do something without affecting something on, on the other side of the yeah. world. So, um, yeah, it's really, really important to, to keep that in mind. And speaking of just capital and you've started angel investing yes. recently. Congratulations. Yeah. So Thank future you. tense capital. Yeah. And so you've made some in investments in, yeah. in the consumer packaged goods yes. space. Mm -hmm. um, what are the core things that you look for when you are looking at a brand and mm -hmm. thinking, hey, this could be a really cool candidate? So we got really focused on this. I mentioned Marlon Thompson earlier. He has an organization called Future Capital, not to be confused with Future Tense. 
And he uh, taught the first course that I ever took on angel investing. And the thing that you do right out of the gate is you develop a thesis. What is your investment thesis? So for, for myself and Lindsay, my business partner, we knew we wanted to invest in female entrepreneurs um, that, were, that were enhancing human potential. So aligning with our values at Monday around enhancing human potential. And it had to be a space that we understood. Like we probably weren't gonna invest in a tech company. We wanted it to be something that we could offer expertise into. So we have two CPG brands that we've invested in. One is called Belly Welly, and it's uh, like a bar that's for people with irritable bowel syndrome. So it's um, they are it's like a FODMAP product, which is like a certain um, like diet nutrition set of standards that are good for people with IBS. And the the founder is a woman. She is so badass. She launched her company the same day she gave birth to her premature child, like her second wow. baby. Both of them went into the world on the same day. She is just like a powerhouse and the kindest person you'll ever meet. And then the other product is called Sun Scoop, and it's the most delicious vegan ice cream I've ever had in my life. Next time you're in LA, go to Erewhon. You can get yes. it there. Their chocolate okay. is mind blowing, and it all has um, like adaptogens built into it. So it's like a, a reishi. Um, chocolate or a, a maca um, mint chip they're oh yeah so I've never delicious. heard of I have not heard of any ice cream it's gonna blow your that. mind they actually had a booth at Coachella last week I was so proud of them cool and then it. we recently invested in our good friends who started their business the exact same time as us and we've been on this really fun entrepreneurship journey together flax home oh yes and uh-huh. company a smaller investment but something we believe in so much like I am obsessed with their sheets I have them on all of my beds I I never want to sleep in anything but linen, even though it is like a big splurge for me when I do it. But um, we launched our businesses within months of each other. We met right around that same time. And those ladies started an organization, not an official organization, but we would do dinners together, a bunch of female entrepreneurs. We called it Lady Business. (laughs) We ended up doing a conference all together just before the pandemic. And they have formed this wicked network of female business owners in the city that have been so supportive to each other through the pandemic and beyond. So, Oh, that's incredible. We're, we're hoping to do a fourth investment this year. We, we have a company that we want to invest in and we're just taking yeah. steps there, but we want to move into the apparel space next. Okay. That's so incredible. Well, congratulations. Thank I look you. forward to seeing what you help bring into the, into the world. Me too. Yeah. Um, just a couple more questions. Uh, you also, I, I know it's on hold, but mm-hmm. you were teaching a course at UBC on yeah. digital storytelling, and I was just thinking about what you're saying about, um, yeah, just humans and the planet, and made me think of future generations, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, what is it like teaching young adults of the next generation? And do you find yourself teaching them and guiding them in a way that's much different than you found yourself being taught back when? I, I, if that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> like I do a teach a bit differently than I have been taught to. So so I might bring something else into that. The, the students that I've taught at UBC are actually more like my peers. Like, they're mm. my age. And actually, one of them is now our client at Adidas, a guy named Jake Cham. He was one of my students years ago, and now he's one of our main contacts at Adidas, which is just ma- magic. And then the other one has become one of my best friends, a guy named Joshua Harris, who is now running a marketing agency here in Vancouver. We met through that and and uh, friendship blossomed so um 
there have been some cool things about teaching that, but I actually teach for um, the Forum for Women's Entrepreneurs. Mm. A couple of times a year, I'll do a branding workshop whenever they have their, um, like they do this thing called the E-Series where hundreds of women from all across Canada do this like two-day conference that they learn about all the different pieces to get their business off the ground. I'm doing it again in a couple of weeks, actually. And these are like young women for the most part who are just at the early stages of their business. And I am an incredibly interactive teacher. And so um, there is a lot of like on the spot coaching that happens. And I don't think I got that. Definitely not at SFU. You know, SFU is way more theoretical. I'm sure UBC was Mm -hmm. similar. It's not applied. Like if I had gone to Ryerson or something, maybe I would have gotten this. But it's like, let's, you know, do critical analysis of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and like what themes are emerging like we were we were not learning practical skills and I really want to equip people with practical skills my course at UBC does that and Mm. my sessions that I do for the forum do that as well and I want to like hear from people like what problems are you coming up against and get them to the other side of it Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm, I see Um, very cool I mean you're so busy how do you keep balanced I I have a really, really wonderful executive coach. And the other day he said to me, I was getting pretty tired. Um, I have a really wonderful business partner who, who like carries a lot of the work burden, but I do a lot of the administrative burden of the business. And she was on maternity leave for a few months and um, she'd just come back and we were just ramping up and I was feeling exhausted. And um, I also just bought a house on the Sunshine Coast that I'm in yes. the process of renovating. So cute. It's great, but it's like, it's a lot of work. And um, my coach said to me the other day, he's like, okay, as a CEO, you have two kind of three responsibilities, like financial performance and growth and unblocking your team. He was like, everything else, including probably podcasts, but here I am, (laughs) you need to be saying no to. Mm. And so I have like really good people that keep me accountable, including my business partner who really keeps me accountable. Mm. But I've, I've like you know, I probably haven't been the best at my personal life for the the last little while. I like have, you know, it's hard to invest in a relationship, for example, when you are fully emerged in um, like managing the lives of 15 people and ensuring that they get paid every month and have work to do. And then um, getting this house set up and yeah. this very huge garden <laughs> set up. So um, I don't always balance things, but I know the things that I need to do to stay health, to stay like focused. And that is is I need to exercise every day and I need to write and reflect almost every day. Mm. So I'm an avid journaler and I'm an avid runner and just yeah. started doing the grass grind again now that the snow is starting to melt. But I know that, that those things are instrumental. This morning I did one of Katie Gallagher's tight club videos yep. and like that's what is going to ground me. And I have a, I have a above average capacity. I think like you do, yeah. <laughs> like my a hundred percent is probably everyone else's 120 or 130 percent and sometimes you still question am i even doing 100 percent? you feel like you're not doing enough Mm -hmm. like when you're doing a regular 100 percent, you feel like you're really slacking Mm -hmm. yeah and there's a bit of a reconciliation with that too being like you are doing a lot yeah you're doing pretty good yeah but it's restful for me to like gardening is restful for me so i will Mm. spend you know eight hours out in my garden and then i'll go to bed exhausted but I feel rejuvenated and refreshed oh absolutely your hands are in the earth like all of that energy going back into it it's so grounding I'm sure yeah well I just um I wasn't gonna ask this question but I'll ask it now because you've you've mentioned your business partner quite a few times mm-hmm. what what do you 
other than her keeping you accountable, yeah, what else do you appreciate about her? She's the most creative person I've ever met. She, I mean, she is like you hear business partners, and I think women do this more than men. Like we'll call each other our wives because our our finances are completely intertwined, our futures are completely intertwined, and she is the person I trust most probably in the world. Like our decision making is super aligned. We can be like siblings sometimes when one of us like rubs each other the wrong way. We can like kind of snap at each other and and we both have a lot of grace for each other when that happens. Thank thank goodness. But this girl can spin a sentence like you have never heard before. Like her her wonder with words blows my mind every day and I like I just trust her like I I could hand her any project and know she's gonna do a better job than anyone else she she works magic with Mm. words and she's visionary and she loves adventure and risk in ways that that I do she's also just very generous Mm. so lovely to have that kind of partnership so lucky Mm. (laughs) so lucky oh I'm so happy for you that that's the case Mm -hmm. Okay, a couple more questions. <laughs> so I was doing some research, and you've described yourself as a maximalist when it comes to <laughs> books. <laughs> I forgot that. That's true. Yeah. And I'm wondering, what's your most treasured one? Oh, I love David Safran Foer. Oh, no, Jonathan, sorry. Jonathan Safran Foer's um, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Mm. I've loaned that to so, so, so many people. Um what is it about the book? I mean, you, so it's, it's this like child who is autistic. They, they never explicitly say that he's autistic. He's lost his father in 9-11. But before he died, his father set up this sort of like journey around New York that forces him to interact with people and, and have this like discovery of his father. I mean, his dad didn't know that he was going to die, but um, it, it like connects him with his father. And so he meets all these different kinds of people and there's these rich characters and it's really beautifully written and there's some interesting things that they do with type throughout the book mm. and I, I love when that happens beautiful and then um I have all of John Irving's books um I love his early stuff like A Prayer for Owen Meany and Sager House Rules those ones really like stick with me even his first book Setting Free the Bears which some people hate I read his last book um Avenue of Mysteries and I actually only got through 20% of it and it was so horrific that mm. I did not finish it you could not I was just like oh he's lost his he's lost his touch it's awful but those John Irving books are near and dear to my heart mm. and then um anything by Tom Robbins but in particular um even cowgirls get the blues mm. I read it when I was in Brazil I was taking a semester off of university and I had this boyfriend in Brazil who um, I stayed for a week with his family on the beach and I remember sitting in a hammock reading this book and just being transported to this sort of alternate magical world that felt a little bit like reality but not really and Tom Robbins does crazy things with language so those are probably like some of my top just like oh. moments with books that I love. Noted, noted. <laughs> you know what? I've never read The Cider House Rules, but I do remember seeing the movie. Also excellent. Very excellent. I think I liked it so much I watched it twice. But yeah, yeah it's it's like it's not in, it's intense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the book, I mean, it deals, it confronted actually, I have to say it like confronted a lot of the ideas that I had about things like abortion mm. growing up in the church. It forced me to rethink some things for the first time, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm how you evolve yeah as a person so two more questions right so you mentioned the word grace 
twice in this conversation once in the beginning and then once closer to the end which is perfect because i do have a question about grace um your favorite quote is by Anne lamott i do not at all understand the mystery of grace only that it meets us where we are but does not leave us where it found us What's your relationship with the concept of grace and allowing that into your daily life? Mm-hmm. You know, I almost got that word tattooed onto me when I was a teen. That was like, it, it was uh, really foundational for me. And I'm, like I said, I'm a- an avid journaler. And for years, I would have some key words that I would write at the beginning of every single journal that I started, which, which were just like words that I would meditate on. And grace has always been one of them. Generosity, there's, a, there's like a few, but grace is always there. And to me, it's, Uh, like it comes from the roots of the faith that I grew up in that's all about forgiveness and and like now it's evolved to like a real focus on empathy seeing where people are at and giving them space like you embody this really well to me May like you have a grace for people there's a non-judgment that I think comes with that and it's just like you are where you are and I'm gonna accept that like, I, I forgive you. I like, not even forgiveness, because forgiveness implies that you've been wronged. And I think most of the time, if you're operating out of grace, you're not even thinking that you've been wronged. You're just seeing a person in their struggle and being like, this is where you're at, and you're trying the best that you can. You yeah. know? It's like that optimistic assumption. I'm going to approach every meeting with someone assuming they're doing their very best, and they're trying their hardest. They're not trying to shortchange me. They're not trying to, like pass off work to me that isn't you know mine to do they're doing their best and I'm gonna try to sit with them in that mm-hmm. yeah and you know sometimes it's easier than other times <laughs> yes. and it's always a, a learning process yeah. but it's it's what I would hope that yeah someone would also do yeah for me I probably didn't have a lot of that for my ex-husband but <laughs> I like to think that through that process I learned you learned to have a lot yeah. More of it. yeah yeah and my final question um, what what you do, what is it that you want to leave behind in the world? Oh, like I am already doing the thing that I want to leave behind in the world. I, I think about a gal who, it's not like my parents, a gal, um, <laughs> a woman who's, who was working for us for the last year who just got hired by Aritzia, like this incredibly talented writer, just one of the most interesting, funny people I've ever met. And we, you know, brought her in, taught her everything we knew, and then just like, blessed her to go on to the next the next journey I want to like create a legacy of really wonderful people that know what a healthy workplace and what healthy human relationships look like and then bring that to wherever they go like I want them to bring grace into all of their interactions going forward and and for the time that they're with us to have like a, a healthy balanced meaningful life in and outside of work mm-hmm. and I create space for people I mean buying this place on the Sunshine Coast the vision was a hundred percent to have a garden where I grow food and a very large table where I host and feed people and then beds where they can sleep that is literally the legacy I want to leave it's so beautiful thank you thank you for being here and thank you for sharing your mind and for all the really really cool and innovative things that you're doing right now it's really really inspiring to watch likewise May. I'm, <laughs> I'm super honored that you're here and I'm super honored that we're friends and I can't wait for for more of these me too thank you thank you 
If you enjoyed that last conversation, be sure to check out more episodes with Craft on Spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com. Thanks again for listening.